podcasts and you can join us online. Mark 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to Jesus, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look! Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Well, let's ask God's help as we look at these verses together. Father, please may our hearts not be hard. Would you soften our hearts to receive the seed of your word? that it might bear fruit in the lives of each one of us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Sometimes a leader can face enormous challenges to their authority. Even hatred. Even attempts on their life. Now, I don't think anyone threatened Liz Truss's life, did they, in the last few weeks? 
but she clearly came under tremendous pressure and finally caved in. Sometimes it's the other way around, though, isn't it? You can have a leader who's a strong leader, who's the one throwing down the challenge to those around them. I mean, we can think of people in the world at the moment who are strong men. Putin, to name but one. President Xi of China, to name another. The Lord Jesus faced enormous challenges from those, well, some around him anyway, but he also, at the same time, threw down enormous challenges to everyone around him. A strong man, though no dictator. And we're going to be looking this morning in these verses at the challenge to Jesus and the challenge by Jesus or from Jesus. So first of all then, the challenge to Jesus, which we find actually from chapter 2, verse 1 through to chapter 3, verse 6 where we find five encounters with Jesus, where the challenge grows in 2, 1 to 11, as we've already seen, the Jewish scripture teachers, the scribes, accuse Jesus of blasphemy. He claims to forgive sins. Only God can do that. Who does he think he is? In the next encounter, 2, 13 to 17, the scripture teachers from among the Pharisees in particular accuse Jesus of compromise. Do you see the company he keeps? It's immoral. How can he be a man of God and keep such company? Now, we need to remember that the Pharisees in Jesus' days were goodies, not baddies, right? I mean, if someone accuses you of being a Pharisee, I don't think you'll take it as a compliment, will you? Well, if someone pointed out a Pharisee in Jesus' days, look, there's a Pharisee over there, that's a compliment. We need to get our heads around that if we're to understand what's going on here. The Pharisees were a highly respected elite. I read this week that perhaps only 1% of the Jewish population of, of Jesus' day were actually Pharisees, but they were highly respected because they took their faith, their Jewish faith, with utmost seriousness. Then in 2, 18 to 22, the next encounter, the third one, people question whether Jesus and his followers actually take their religion seriously. They seem to have no place for fasting, unlike John, the Baptist's followers, and the Pharisees, who do fast. And then in chapter 2, 23 to 28, the Pharisees challenge Jesus about why it is that his followers break the Sabbath by plucking heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath. Now, in Jewish culture and in the history of the Jewish people, the Sabbath and circumcision were the two great external markers of the Jewish faith. And the Sabbath, of course, was a day of rest. God had made it clear that no work should be done in any shape or form on that day. And over the centuries, great effort and great mental effort had been expended in defining work. What is work? And they'd come up with, by Jesus' day, 39 categories. We'll just go through them one... No, we won't. Um, <laughs> and then in chapter 3, 1 to 6, this fifth encounter, the ante against Jesus is getting really fierce. I don't know if you've listened or watched any of the videos of the attacks on cities in, in Ukraine where there's just constant sound of gunfire and explosions, and you think, wow, 
While the anti against Jesus is getting to that state, you can almost hear the gunfire. And guess what? The Pharisees have planted themselves in church to watch Jesus. This is hostile stuff. They're looking for evidence to accuse him. See that in chapter 3, verse 2. They, they watched Jesus. We're watching you to see whether he would heal this man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. Did they set him up? We don't know. He was there anyway. But why are they watching, verse 2, so that they might accuse him? If he heals the man with the withered hand, they have the evidence they wanted. Because healing is working, isn't it? When it's not needed to save life, they did have that exception. And if Jesus does it, well, he could have waited till the next day. He's clearly a Sabbath breaker. Jesus does it. And what's the result? Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, how to destroy him. On the Sabbath itself, of course, ironically, as Mark implies, the Pharisees have a meeting with the Herodians and hatch a plot to get rid of Jesus. Now, there's, there's an even deeper irony, because if you look at these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they were natural enemies. The, the Pharisees, the religious elite, were at loggerheads with the Roman occupiers, whereas the Herodians were the political elite who were in league with the Romans. They owed their power to being pals with the Romans. And yet, what unites them? It's a common enemy, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, why does Mark tell us so soon in his book, we're barely two chapters in, that they are out to kill Jesus? Well, first, let me suggest it's because it's the truth, and he's recording true history. It took very little time, remarkably little time, for the religious and political authorities to turn against Jesus for they quickly grasped his electric authority. But I wonder if it's also partly because, remember, Mark is, is writing to Romans, to Gentiles, maybe in Rome itself, who had become followers of Jesus or were considering becoming followers of Jesus. And maybe that's you. And they needed to understand that the fierce persecution that they were facing as they received this account of Jesus from Mark in the 50s and 60s, or whenever it was AD that, that Mark wrote, and the fierce persecution that they were going to get from religious Jewish leaders as well, not to mention Roman emperors like Nero later on, and earlier Claudius, I, Claudius, he, Claudius, 49 AD, kicked all the Jews out of Rome, caused all kinds of trouble between the Christians and the Jews. And Mark is saying, look, if you go right back to the beginning of this Jesus that you're following or considering following, remember, that's exactly what he faced. Right from the beginning, he faced challenges to his authority, to his person. There was a group, the religious elite, who joined the political elite to try and get rid of him from day one, almost. 
Now, if you claim to be a Christian, I don't know how it is for your experience in life, where you work, where you live, your, your family, your colleagues. Do you face persecution for your beliefs? I would doubt it, though maybe you do. Certainly in many parts of the world today, that would be the case. But is it not true that the attitude of our culture around us to Christian faith, orthodox, biblical Christian doctrine and teaching and understanding is getting increasingly hostile? Is that not your experience? Certainly seems to be the case as I, as I see things. So we may not be being persecuted at the moment, but that's the direction we're heading in. There's certainly rejection generally of what we believe. If, if, most, if, this, if what's happening in here this morning and what we're teaching and what we're doing was broadcast live to every home in the country, there'd be people shouting at the telly, wouldn't there? Just as, I don't know if you talk to the radio occasionally. Uh, I have to confess I do. Um, well, at the very least, are we not afraid to speak what we believe in context outside of the safe environment of the church? I am. I find myself you know, sitting after a game of tennis with my friends from the tennis club thinking, do I dare invite them to some of the things that are going on in Life 22? I actually did. I, I have raised the question of death. It seemed an obvious thing after a bad set yesterday to raise the question of death. So we got onto that, which is quite interesting. Um, but we face mockery, don't we, for our convictions? But we need to realize that they hated Jesus when he was on earth. And maybe that's why Mark is telling us this so early on. There has always been a challenge to Jesus and his followers. But, secondly, Jesus has always been a challenger of those around him. There is a challenge from Jesus. And we see that in particularly 2.18 to 3.6. Now, before we look at the challenge that, that Jesus lays down, I want us to see about the ch think about the challenge he does not make. Jesus does not get into an argument about fasting. He could have done, but he chose not to. He does not get into the definition of work in order to discuss what is work for the purposes of Sabbath rest. He could have done, but he chose not to. He does not get into the question of whether the healing of the, the man with the withered hand could have waited until the next day. He might have done, but he chose not to. So what is the challenge that he lays down? Well, let me suggest two things in these three stories. Number one, in 2.19 to 20, as he responds to this question about why his disciples do not fast, he doesn't seem to answer it, does he, initially? He, he suddenly goes off talking about a wedding feast. Where is he going with this? Jesus said to them, verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So he, he turns the question about fasting into a comment on how to behave at a wedding. Some of us were at a wedding yesterday, weren't we? I could tell you were at a wedding because I was here too, because of the long faces, the black clothing, the offering of condolences to the family, 
so sorry to hear about your daughter getting married. No! There were beaming smiles, bright dresses and ties. I had a much brighter tie on than this one yesterday, I tell you. Congratulations to the families. But why talk then in verse 19 about while the bridegroom is with them? What is Jesus getting at? Well, he's talking to people who are literate in what we would call the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew their Bibles, another way of putting it. And if they had checked the Scriptures, they would have found references like Isaiah 62, verse 5, where the prophet says this, speaking for God, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And it's not just in Isaiah 62, 5, time and again in the Old Testament, God is the bridegroom and his people are the bride. It's a beautiful picture of a coming together, a joyful union. And Jesus is implying, is he not, as you think about it, and Mark is recording this so that we realize that there is something divine about the one who stands among them. So to argue about whether you fast or not is somewhat to miss the point. And yet Jesus knew that the bridegroom would be taken away. Do you see he talks about that in, in verse 20, that the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. Doubtless a reference to his death when surely his followers would be deeply sad and mourn and fast. But the message is clear. Jesus came to put a bomb under religion and to blow it sky high. He makes that clear in verses 21 and 22 where he uses these, goes straight onto these two pictures. Imagine, he says, you wouldn't sew a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If you do, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Your old torn jeans. I know it's all the fashion to keep the tear these days. I keep wanting to stop people in the street and say, oh, by the way, your, your, your jeans are torn but I don't. I'm tempted, but I don't. Um, well, imagine it was fashionable to mend your jeans and to put a patch on. You, you don't put an unshrunk patch on. You know that if you put that through the wash, it's going to come out with a worse tear than before you mended it. I remember the time when we as a family, when I was a kid, we, we were making our own ginger beer. Do you remember that was all the rage for a few years? Yeah? Well, I mean, we went away for a week, and we came back, and our utility room, the, the ginger beer had exploded. And the entire ceiling and wall and floor and every single item in the utility room was smothered with ginger beer. Ugh. But it's what happens if you get the container wrong. It just explodes. And Jesus uses a similar analogy. We don't tend to make wine, and maybe some of you do. But if you put, you don't mix new wine and old containers, old wineskins. They would just explode. Now, new wine is for fresh wineskins, verse 22. You can't mix the new and the old. Jesus has come to revolutionize things. And you can't contain faith in Jesus inside ritual and rules and regulations. It, it just doesn't work. So, Jesus is actually answering the question about fasting by saying, you're missing the point. There's something much bigger going on here. Do you realize who I am? 
And then the other, the other way that Jesus challenges them is at the end of the chapter, end of chapter 22, in verse 28. We're discussing the Sabbath. He says this. He says, so the Son of Man, that's the reference to himself, alluding to Daniel 7, this extraordinary figure who, who comes before God and is given supreme authority in the universe, divine authority. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. See, when challenged about his disciples and the claim that they're not keeping the rules of the Sabbath in verse 23 following, Jesus, again, it, you say, well, he's not answering the question. He goes off to some story about King David. But that is exactly to the point. Because King David was Israel's greatest king. And Jesus tells the story of how he, when he was on the run from Saul, but was already the anointed king, he was God's chosen king. He goes to the temple and his men, he and his men are hungry, and the priest gives him the bread of the presence, which was only for the priests. No one else was allowed to eat it. But this is King David. There's an exception to the rule here because it's the king, the anointed one. Implication, do you realize who I am, says Jesus? Well, I'll tell you. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm not under it. I'm over it. Now, who did Scripture? As these Pharisees, because they're the ones who question him, verse 24. It's the Pharisees saying to him, why are you doing this, or why do your followers do this? Did they not know the Scriptures? So, for example, Ezekiel 20, verse 12, which quotes from Exodus and says this about the Sabbath. Moreover, I gave them, this is the Lord speaking, my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them, who sets them apart for myself. My Sabbaths, says the Lord God. I am the Lord of the Sabbath, says Jesus. What? How can you say that? Who do you think you are? Well, it's hard to avoid the answer, isn't it? Equal with God. And how does Jesus feel when he sees his day misused, made a, a straitjacket to restrict not, if you like, a spa break to rejuvenate. Now look at verse 5 of chapter 3. Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. As he looks around at us and he looks into our hearts, Right now, what does he think? What does he see? Well, let me suggest as we close that the challenge from Jesus is at least twofold. Number one, God's gifts are not to be abused by religion. God's gifts are not to be abused by religion. See, the Sabbath was a day for doing good, as Jesus made clear in his question in 3.4. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? 
It's not a day for doing harm. And the religious were abusing it by preventing the doing of good by their legalistic approach. And so, in effect, aiding and abetting the doing of harm. And as we noted earlier, more than that, they were using it, the Pharisees, the religious elite, to, to hatch their murderous plots, the hypocrites. Well, we catch you working, but we'll just go off and have a meeting about how to kill you. That's okay. Really? I don't think so. And how careful we need to be that we don't turn the gift of grace, God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, into a set of rules and regulations. Maybe you had an upbringing like that where it was just, it was Christianity, but it was Christianity plus all kinds of rules and regulations. And Jesus explodes that kind of ritual, even if it's an evangelical ritual of Sabbath keeping or whatever it might be. And then there's the danger of abuse of positions of power in the church to harm others. There are sad examples, aren't there, in recent churches, which are not a million miles from the kind of church we are, where people in positions of power have abused that and have bullied others and worse. And we must be so careful that we don't use our position if we're a pastor or a minister or whatever it might be to abuse the gift that God has given us by harming others and not doing good. It's a challenge. And then the final challenge, the second challenge as I see it, how, how it applies to us is that, that God's Son, Jesus, must not be missed for who He really is. Now, when we were kids in, in our family, we used to go on holiday to three, we used to go on holiday to Scotland, where my cousins lived, really nice mountains in Scotland, if you've ever been there. We used to go on a holiday to Wales, tended to be near the Snowdonia National Park, lovely hills there, Cataridris, do you know it? Wonderful. And we used to go to Somerset, to the Quantock Hills. Anyone heard of the Quantock Hills? They're sort of, they're sort of hills, sort of up, up and down bits. Um, well, three years ago, we had the privilege of visiting the Zarates in, in Peru. And um, Edward's sister is a travel agent, and she set us up on a wonderful series of days. And we went, amongst other places, to Machu Picchu. Great privilege. But I tell you, the journey there was quite extraordinary. You go on a train down this valley, and you look out of the window, and you see, well, for me, a mountain like I've never seen in my life. It's kind of like a sheer cliff. And then it, you kind of think, well, I wonder how high it is. And you, your eyes go up, and then you realize the window of the train is getting in the way, and you have to kind of stick your head out the window in order to see, oh, my word, that is unbelievably high. And then you go to the other side of the train. You think, I wonder what it's like on the other side. And you think, oh, it's another cliff. And then you stick your head out of the window, and you think, oh, my word. I have never seen mountains like that in my life. It's extraordinary. So that's what a mountain looks like. Well, when we come to know Jesus, we might think he's, he's an impressive guy. He heals the sick, 
Jesus is dead. But what Mark is trying to tell us, what the scriptures are trying to tell us is that you can have a conception of Jesus and hopefully as you grow, grow in your faith, it gets bigger and bigger, but it's never as big as the reality. Jesus is ginormous. He's gargantuan. He's huge. He's this colossus, this towering figure, God walking upon the earth. And if we want to relate to him rightly, it's not a matter of trying to fit him into our agenda. You know, I have a very busy life, a lot of things I need to do, but I'll give you some time, very generous of me. Oh, no. We need to fit our lives around him. He's Lord not just of the Sabbath. He's Lord of everything. Every square centimeter of the universe belongs to him. Every atom in our bodies belongs to him. So is that how we're living? That's the challenge of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we might not abuse your grace or try and restrict to a set of rules faith in our Lord Jesus. And we pray that our understanding of the greatness and majesty and magnificence of Jesus might grow and grow. And that our lives and their priorities and their details, as well as their big direction, might reflect these realities. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.